The Athletic. What makes a great teammate pairing? Is it all about putting together the two best drivers possible, or is that more trouble than it's worth? How much does harmony matter? And is it best to have a clear number one and a number two? We're going to cover all of that and much more in our latest Bring Back V10's Top 10 debate as we choose the 10 best driver pairings from the V10 era. And I'm going to see if there are any more ways to say 10. To quickly explain how this works, we took every Constructors' Championship winning driver combination, added in some wild cards that we felt were worthy of inclusion, and from a list that had then grown to 22 pairings from that process, we then each picked our top 10. Points were given out using the current F1 points system, and the results were then combined to create an overall top 10 ranking, which is the order we'll be debating for you here. Our panel that are with me on the show haven't seen the final list, so they don't know exactly what's going to crop up and when. But let's introduce them now with a shout out for some of the less fancied pairings that we're probably not going to talk about, even though they did make it onto our short or long list, depending on how you want to look at it. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, for this special Bring Back V10s episode, we have Matt Beer first. Matt, of the wildcard pairings that you submitted, which one do you think is least likely to have made it into the overall top 10? Uh, Rubens Barrichello and Eddie Irvine at Jordan, because I, I love this pairing, but it was they were flawed. They probably wasted as many chances as they took. But I think the idea of two quite young, quite exciting, quite talented drivers who didn't really get on, didn't really trust each other, were completely different. A team like Jordan in the position it was in the mid 90s. It's just there's something really exciting about that. And I kind of I like things that are kind of exciting but flawed. It's much it's much more interesting. But to be honest, I wouldn't have put this pairing in any top 10. Um, but that's the point of a wild card, isn't it? It's just something someone you find interesting. Yeah. And actually, uh, we kind of took turns doing the wild cards. And once a few of the obvious non-championship winning combinations have been done, you realise that the, the pool gets quite shallow quite quickly. So there were some fun inclusions. Ben Anderson is also here with us. So Ben, which of your rogue suggestions do you think uh, this would be the last mention they get on this entire episode? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Juan Pablo Montoya and Ralph Schumacher, Williams teammates from 2001 to 2004. Um, they weren't an obvious wildcard choice to even me when I was trying to think of wildcards uh, and I think even though both of them were very accomplished drivers although like Matt said with his choice flawed um, I think they're kind of undermined by Williams being competitive but not really quite delivering through that period and feeling that the whole thing was kind of an underachieving project. Ed Straws here as well. Uh, Ed, we couldn't do this without you. Um, are you going to confess to the fact that you didn't nominate a single LaRousse driver lineup uh, in your wild cards? And, and which one do you think uh, hasn't made it in? Choosing between LaRousse driver lineups is like choosing between your favourite children. You can't do it. So I, I just thought I'd give myself a free pass on that. The one I mentioned that I don't think we'll get in will be Ivan Capelli and Mauricio Guzelman, who, of course, spent four years together at Leighton House March, three of those in the Bring Back V10 era, 46 races, in case anyone's interested. It was a lovely pairing for a, a team in a certain place, a really upwardly mobile midfield team, some great performances. But I think even I would probably not argue they should be in the top 10. They were certainly a favourite pairing of mine though I'd say yeah I enjoyed the logic for uh, for them being in a, 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 a cool pairing not necessarily uh, one that's going to lead 
a debate like this. Uh, so before we get into it, obviously, once we get to what will become a regular top 10 feature at the end of each series. Now we're winding down series seven. Uh, but there's still plenty of reasons to join the Race Members Club. You'll still get early access to ad-free versions of the show, the remaining episodes and the next series. There will be some bonus content between series, and that includes an exclusive chance for members to submit questions for your very own Ask Us Anything episode that won't be released in the main feed. So we will be doing our usual end-of-series Ask Us Anything. Um, submissions for that are now closed, because by the time you hear this episode, we will have already recorded that one. Uh, there are other great benefits from uh, from the race uh, if you join the members club. So it is well worth checking out even between series of Bring Back V10. So head to the-race.com forward slash members club to find out more and to sign up. And if you want to join this debate about teammate pairings, head to our Bring Back V10's Twitter community where we'll post the full shortlist we had to choose from, including the wild cards. And then you can all submit your own top tens and presumably argue as much as we're about to hear. To find us, head to the Communities button on Twitter, which you can find in the app or on your browser. Search for Bring Back V10s and come in, join our group, where uh, Ed has now started posting random trivia questions, as well as dropping hints whenever he bumps into a V10-era driver in the F1 paddock. So you'll get all sorts of nonsense from us in there. And, and now I can now honestly say hundreds of other fans of the v10 era are in there to talk to it's a great place to to come along and yeah keep keep the v10 fire burning right let's get on with the top 10 then and as i said our guests have no idea what's about to come so we're going to work through it and surprise them with number 10 in 10th place edging out michael schumacher and johnny herbert from 1995 by just a single point under our combined system it's a strange one actually it's williams's 1994 lineup this was the year that damon hill was partnered first by Ayrton senna and then the seat was shared by david coulthard and nigel mansell following senna's death at Imola, Damon, of course, fought for the Drivers' Championship and claimed six wins. Mansell won the season finale in Adelaide. And DC, once he got his act together uh, and got used to stepping up to F1 as a rookie, should have had back-to-back -back second places in a nice little run uh, at Monza and Estoril. He ran out of fuel, I think, uh, at the Italian Grand Prix. So, you know, he came good at the end of the year as well. But this is a good chance for me to clarify something. We didn't allow specific short-lived pairings to be considered here. So the best example of that, I think, was you couldn't have Ayrton Senna or Mika Hakkinen just because they did a few races together in 1993. But obviously here we were voting on the, the kind of entirety of, of Williams's lineup. It did beat Benetton to the Constructors title in that controversial 1994 season. Still only good enough to be picked by uh, ben and by me, Ed and Matt didn't choose them. Uh, I had it eighth and Ben, you had it seventh. So what was it about this combination of drivers that got them pretty comfortably into your top 10? Well, there's the unusual element of that season, which you described, you know, massive change in the lineup, very difficult year for Williams drivers stepping in. I think broadly doing a really good job in what was a difficult car to start with and then a horrible season for the team based on what happened to Senna. There's the emotional element of me being a Damon Hill fan of that era, you know, him stepping up into the team leadership role, driving the race of his life, the race he calls the race of his life in Japan that season. 
Um, the fact Senna was involved in the lineup, probably most people's choice, or certainly in the top two or three for best driver of the V10s era. Uh, and then you've got Nigel Mansell coming back to Formula One and giving a pretty good account of himself as well. You know, particularly Adelaide at the end of the season. David Coulthard coming in as a as a new boy in a difficult situation again, proving himself cut out to be an F1. A kind of very exciting lineup, basically, I think, and and one that was quite significant in that period of F1 and the the axis on which it turned subsequently. Yeah, I think for me, it just got in on pure star power, really. To have Mansell and Senna, even if their paths yeah. didn't cross for obvious reasons, Hill was. You know, a world champion a couple of years after this. Coulthard went on to craft a, a great career. It's just a lot of good names all ended up in the same team at the same time. But as I mentioned, Ed and Matt uh, didn't choose this lineup. Uh, we'll let you both explain that. Uh, Ed, we'll come to you first. Any particular reason this didn't make the cut for you? While it did have all that star power and it was a great story, they got the Constructors title, it wasn't really a driver partnership it was almost an unholy alliance forced by circumstance of course there were four states for this because there was monaco where it was just damon hill on his own so yeah i wouldn't necessarily say it's terribly stupid to put it in but for me it didn't get very close to the overall criteria it was a, a make do and mend type season wonderful story great that williams got the reward of the constructors championship but i think that almost reflected more Benetton's shenanigans with a second car not really contributing a great deal rather than anything particularly mighty here so yeah it was never I, I did not consider it, but it was quite an easy one to put in the no pile. It was a, it was a bit different for me. This, I was quite close to letting this one in on the basis of the the peaks for the four drivers involved, but it was it was just a very hard to judge one. Yeah, you know, Damon Hill did some utterly heroic things in incredibly difficult circumstances that year, and, and very very early in his F one career as well. But then there was lots of the season when the car when he was a long way off the pace that Benetton and Michael Schumacher were saying and pretty hard to judge what of that was the hill factor and what that was the car factor for a lot of that senna was really hard to quantify in it because he was barely there obviously but he did put in you know two pole position laps and was a long way ahead of hill uh, at interlagos the only race you could actually compare them Coulthard, i thought was fantastic towards the end of that stint but quite scruffy up to that point i don't know actually probably i would say two-thirds of Coulthard's season was pretty respectable for someone who'd been thrown in like that um, obviously, regular Breakback V10s listeners will know that my face goes a weird colour every time Mansell gets mentioned, but uh, <laughs> a colour that you can hopefully hear. But, uh, you know, I loved how rubbish he was at Hareth in that in that appearance, but he he was pretty good the rest of the time. Wasn't on the hill's pace, though, and part of me, the, okay, I'm a Mansell hater, but part of me also thinks you're supposed to be a legend and, you you know, you're coming in and being outperformed by Hill, who at that point was not consistently a top top driver certainly so i'm a little bit down on the mantle element obviously although he was good in places in those races i just think there's there's some real honestly from all four of them there's some real peaks but a very hard to judge season i couldn't be confident enough that there was enough excellence across the board to get it get it in you almost make me want to vote that one higher up now just to annoy you on the mantle thing but <laughs> one thing i should add about this is it does create a little i like my themes on bring back v10s and a mini theme for me in this particular podcast will be the trickiness of williams lineups in this period in that this is almost a microcosm and a bit of an exaggeration of it but this whole period there's a bit of a lack of good stable williams lineups to to pick from yeah that's a good point and as we as we discussed actually at the start of this series uh when we got into 
Damon Hill getting dumped on his way to winning the 1996 championship. It's just a reflection, really, of the fact that Frank Williams' attitude, as we heard from Williams insiders in that episode, was that the drivers were kind of interchangeable. And, and when the cars were good enough, Williams Williams got away with that for a, for a few years. Let's move on to ninth place then. And we have a Williams, another Williams driver lineup, and uh, another one that I imagine Ed might have uh, conflicting feelings about. So in ninth place, we have Alain Prost and Damon Hill, Williams's driver pairing from 1993. Prost led the team to a comfortable championship double in the dominant Williams FW15C. He claimed seven wins. Hill took another three as a rookie, and I think it's fair to say was unlucky not to win a couple more. Uh, what I will say is I'm almost entirely responsible for this one getting in, uh, as we'll explain in a moment. Uh, ben also gave it a vote, although it was a lowly ninth. Uh, but again, Ed and Matt didn't include this one. Ed, I'm going to throw to you first here because I know you're a massive admirer of the 1993 season and you were a Damon Hill fan in the 90s. So any particular reason this combination couldn't scrape into the top 10 for you? Yeah, I'm a huge admirer of Prost as well. So it's a lineup that I really like. Hill and Prost at Williams. They obviously won the Constructors' Championship and the Drivers' Championship for Prost. So you can't really fault what they did. But I think it's purely just that moment in time. It was kind of a, a Prost who was going quickly when he needed to, but cruising to that fourth world championship in a very good car. He did what he needed to do. No problem there. And a Hill who was making his mark in F1 being quicker than, as Prost has said, than I think perhaps many expected. Even Prost himself was slightly surprised. But because it was one season, because it was still a younger Hill who still wasn't at his peak, I couldn't quite put it in, even though there's so much about this that really, really gels with what I like. So I felt a bit bad about it, but I thought, well, this is meant to be trying to be as objective as possible, even though it's fundamentally a subjective process. So I'm very pleased they've made it in, but I couldn't quite argue them in even though that lower part of the, the sort of top 10 vote is very, very tricky because you start getting into all these different caveats. So it depends where you where you put the caveat. But I don't think it was the most powerful partnership in terms of what it delivered against what it had. I'm often looking for teammate partnerships that, for example, elevate what a team can do. And while that partnership didn't, I think, diminish it, I don't think that they got absolutely everything out of that car that season, even though both a great pair of drivers. I, I know we're supposed to be arguing for entertainment effect. Well, not more because we actually disagree on this podcast, but I've got to completely agree with everything Ed said, basically there. That's boring. Yeah, I'm really sorry, but it's he's it's spot on. You know, this was too soon to see the proper Damon Hill and too late to see the proper Alan Prost. And in a car that good, it didn't actually matter in terms of winning stuff because everybody else was too hobbled by their machinery for that to to stop these two wrapping up championships together. But this, you know, this was a error prone and sketchy hill at first, as you would be if you'd, your F1 career up to that point was some testing and an awful Brabham and Alan Prost doing what he needed to do, but, but no more. Yeah. I think uh, you have to maybe not only look at the season itself, because if you just focus on 93, uh, then 
those arguments absolutely stack up. They had a massive car advantage. Sorry, the the, the one season when they were a teammate pairing. Yes, but I mean, <laughs> what, I'm what's going about on here? I'm talking about the drivers and the the round of their career. You know, well, I think it was Matt Prost that mentioned did better you in F3 than Hill. So does that uh, mean you that? weren't seeing you weren't seeing the best of Prost because yeah, he was he was getting old and getting fed up and he was about to to stop altogether. But you are talking about one of the best drivers in Formula One history. Most people would say in a lineup with a guy who uh, had a fantastic rookie season and went on to be a world champion a few years later. So if you take those drivers as the the whole of themselves, putting them together makes a really strong pairing. It's, it's a version of the star power argument, I would say, that led to Glenn and I voting the 94 Williams lineup quite high. You know, you would, if you were talking about you needing two drivers in a random race to stick together and bet on them to get a certain result to get you out of trouble. Putting those two together wouldn't be the most powerful pairing, obviously, because they're only ranked ninth, but they would be a really, really strong lineup. I think what we've hit upon here is that the beauty of these debates uh, is that they can be, you can interpret them however you want. And actually, um, you know, the, the guys, I, I do get asked, you know, how are we judging this? And I would say, I'm literally just saying we're judging the teammate pairings and it's up to you to have your interpretation. And as I have to explain why this why this one has got in, because it's purely down to me. <laughs> I put this one second. Wow. And <laughs> it's, but it is because of really what Ben hinted at. Yeah, it's not that 1993 Alain Prost and 1993 Damon Hill together or add, add them together and you get the second best driver pairing that we ever saw during this time. It's... I've looked at when just just who the drivers were and yeah what they were or what they became and in this case also the dynamic I think for a top team at the time to have the the, the experienced world champion leader and and a rookie even if he's in his 30s which is unthinkable now a rookie teammate who was capable of of beating him of capable of pushing him certainly by mid-season um, and sh- as I said, should have won more races. It's kind of what Alan Prost was as a Formula One driver and what Damon Hill went on to be as a Formula One driver, plus how good the dynamic was at the time. It just it ticked a lot of boxes for me. And actually, as we go through this, you'll see that quite often in my top 10, I have gone by like what was the combination of, of the star power rather than necessarily... How perfect were they as a duo or, or how long were they together or how exactly how many races did they win? So, yeah, when I, I spent when I was scribbling my list together, I kept moving this one around and it just kind of ended up there because I had a clutch at the top of kind of what I felt were the, the star pairings. And I could make a case, as we'll explain later, that it's it's better than that combination of world champions and it's, it's better than that one. Um, so. It's so close to not being in that if I just put them in the middle somewhere, they wouldn't have made the cut. It's really interesting. I think my interpretation is more similar to yours, Glenn, than maybe Ed's and Matt's has been. Um, And the only reason I didn't have this pairing higher is because of the 93 specific aspect that you're not seeing the absolute best of Prost and you're yet to see the absolute best of Hill. But if you take them... Yeah, and their car wasn't challenged. No, they weren't challenged. I totally Yeah, it was an easy, relatively easy season. But for who they were in the round, you could absolutely make a case. I agree with you. They could be right up the top. But as you said, they weren't exactly challenged. Great car, the 93 Williams. 10 out of 16 races they won. They let Senna win five 
and Schumacher got the other one. That's a lot of wins left on the table for a car that could have won all races that season. So I contend that there's a bit of a shortfall there in terms of just delivering. Surely, how, how do you square that off? Basically, Ed, I think what you're saying, and I agree with you, is that if you put Prost and Hill in the McLaren in 93, Prost wins one race, Hill only gets on the podium when the Ligiers retire. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. We don't want to have days when the Ligiers retire, but I, I, think, I think this is a... I but that's that's I, the thing. You're, to answer your question, Ed, I explained in what I said, I'm not purely saying what they did in 1993 is why I've, ju- I've judged them. I have judged it on seeing a pairing that is Alain Prost and Damon Hill together in the same car. That And that's consistent, I would think, throughout my top 10. And that's the beauty of us all interpreting it differently. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to defend the races they didn't win in 93. Um, I, one of you said that they let Senna win some races. I, I think that was Senna Ed. took some of them. <laughs> um, but anyway, we, are, we have many more arguments to have. So let's move on to number eight. And eighth in our list is Michael Schumacher and Eddie Irvine. They spent four years together at Ferrari from 1996 to 1999. Irvine, as we've discussed uh, in previous episodes, was very much signed as Schumacher's number two. And I think we could say he did that job increasingly well as he got closer to Schumacher's pace the longer they were together. In the end, Ferrari's era of true success really kicked off just after Irvine left, having had his own crack at the title in 1999 following Schumacher's broken leg during that season. But Ferrari did win the Constructors' Championship that year. I had this pairing ninth in my list. Uh, Ben didn't include them. Matt had them sixth and Ed had them fourth. So before uh, we ask Ed why he put them so high... Um, and then we ask him about all the races they let other people win. Um, <laughs> Matt, I noticed in your submission, you included Mikasalo's name in brackets. Was that just because he con- contributed to the 99 Constructors win, so he's included by default? Or does he have somehow elevate <laughs> this pairing in your eyes? Oh, I, I, yes, kind of, in that I was... I, I don't think this had made the cut without Irvine's 99, so you have to then bring Salo along with him basically so he's kind of in there by default although he did two very good races in that time um shall I continue with my reasoning for this or do you want to let Ed's adoration for this you can keep going you have the floor okay fantastic Uh, so my my reasoning for putting them quite high Salo aside is yeah I didn't particularly like or rate Eddie Irvine at the time but if you're talking about an effective partnership Eddie Irvine bought into how to be Schumacher's number two better than anybody else was not a bad driver in himself even though I think he should have achieved a bit more but the circumstances a lot of the time weren't great with rubbish Ferraris that broke all the time and the teammate taking all the attention but he was there to do a job he did that job he didn't cause a scene particularly Um, and in the meantime Schumacher was being relentlessly absolutely amazing especially in 96 I'd say um, and a lot of my judgments were based on the peak side of the driver lineup, the person who was really, really good, and then how far does the other person drag that down? And given the circumstances of how bad the car was in the first part of this period, I don't think Irvine drags this one down too far. And then even if I am pulling the lineup down with some didn't drive very fast points for Irvine, I'm pulling it back up again because it just, it worked. You know, not a subservient number two in the kind of absolute doormat kind of way that say a Nicola Larini might have been if they'd gone for the just chuck an Italian in the second car route but um just yeah he 
like I say, he bought into what the purpose of him being there was in a way I don't think anybody else in the group would have done. And and it worked. Yeah, the, the reason it got in for me was really the chemistry. And, and when when Ferrari needed this to work, when they needed the team to play the team orders game, I think Irvine was much better in that role than uh, than we saw from Rubens Barrichello when he when he took over. Uh, but come on then, Ed. So fourth best pairing of the era. Uh, explain yourself. Well, some of what Matt said applies. The fact Irvine bought into what he needed to be, worked well with Schumacher, played his role pretty well. He was very, very much the number two, and particularly early on, partly it was Schumacher producing miracles with limited machinery. Partly he didn't always have the best machinery or the most reliable in that period, but he, he just did the job. They had four years together, so there's a little bit of longevity there. They work well. Irvine, if you look at it, 20 podium finishes he had. Okay, not as many wins as Michael Schumacher. Schumacher only had 33 podiums in the same races that they were together. That doesn't include the ones Irvine got when he was with Salo and Schumacher was injured. So I just think they did a good job together. Got the 99 Constructors' Championship, which I think kind of sums up part of the role that Irvine was there to do. He was able to have a run at the driver's title in 99 as well. Fell a little bit short, but... I think it was the right partnership for that team at the right time and also worked way better than I thought it would have done going into it. So I think it's that longevity, that time for Ferrari, that Constructors' Championship at the end that really, really works well. And obviously Schumacher demolished Irvine, but some of these pairings that I think worked really well were ones where you had a megastar and a number two that worked well. And I think Irvine was someone who helped, she not necessarily helped Schumacher to be better, but he allowed Schumacher to do what Schumacher does. And then he could kind of hang on to his coattails and pick up the points solidly behind him. Allowed Schumacher to do what he does. But I mean, Schumacher just did what he does. I mean, Johnny Herbert allowed Schumacher to do what he does at Benetton. Uh, I'm amazed at this lineup so high. I get the, the chemistry thing and the clear roles that are defined. But I don't think Irvine was particularly brilliant number two. What did he really add? He was terrible in 96, not very impressive in 97, solid in 98. And he was only good in 99 once Schumacher broke his leg and Ferrari focused on him. And then he still didn't win the championship in a season that most people, I think on the Bring Back V10s podcast, would accept Michael Schumacher probably would have won that title had he been fit for the whole season. So I just feel like, on the performance side, Irvine is never in the top bracket of drivers for this era, for anyone really. And there are good number one and number two pairings and there are better number one and number two pairings than this one. Let's move on to seventh place. We've still got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> this is going to be an epic episode. Uh, this is a pair that didn't win a championship together and they weren't together for very long either. Uh, Kimi Raikkonen and Juan Pablo Montoya at McLaren come in seventh. So, as I said, a season and a half together before Montoya walked away from F1 in the middle of 2006. But at times the previous year, they obviously lit up the 2005 season in the brilliant McLaren MP420, where they combined to win 10 races and probably only really missed out on the, the Constructors' Championship because the car wasn't reliable enough against the Renault. Ben and Ed had this combination sixth in their rankings. I had it fifth, and Matt didn't include it at all. So Matt, we'll come to you first. Why didn't Raikkonen and Montoya do it for you? Because, oh, because it was the end of Montoya for me, and I'm judging it on the time they were together. And yeah, if you take it as like 
Pete Crichton and plus Pete Montoya. Is, there's even a ca- there's a case for making it top three. I get that, but if you're judging it on when they were together. Raikkonen made Montoya look completely pointless. Like, why would you bother signing Montoya when you have Raikkonen in the team on the evidence of what they were doing together with how much Montoya let slip? Okay, there was a lot of speed shown in there, but I can't think of many times in that pairing where Montoya did better than Raikkonen when Raikkonen wasn't enormously compromised by a grid penalty or three engine failures in a weekend or something. It was just a complete heartbreaker for someone who'd been massively into Montoya up to that point. So I think maybe I marked it down through disillusionment, but... um, you know Raikkonen who turns out to not be as good as Alonso completely destroys someone who obviously is nowhere near as good as we all hoped he would be just doesn't make it as a as a thrilling pairing for me it just makes it you know one brilliant driver and someone else getting crushed and then wandering off to NASCAR halfway through I think Raikkonen definitely drags this pairing up uh the ranking because this is like peak Raikkonen as well um should have been champion really but for unreliability I think you could argue 2005 is his best season yeah exactly so you've got that and you've got up to that point one of the stars of this era as well alongside him it's like it's a like pure power lineup even if I do accept Matt's argument that Montoya was not he wasn't quite a spent force at the start but obviously by the middle of the following season he was uh I think the two of those, if you take again them in the round, this one of the most powerful driver pairings and probably just in a team that couldn't quite handle the two of them at the same time as well. They're a really bizarre pairing, actually, because I originally had them on the no way list to put in the top 10. And then, of course, you kind of work through them and think about it. And actually, there were there were signs that it was starting to work really well. Montoya was a better technical driver, better development driver than he's given credit for. He worked quite hard. He really didn't get on with the McLaren initially. He often talks about the fact when he first drove the car, he's like, something's wrong with it. There's something not right because the steering was weird. Everything was weird. But he was starting to get there. In that second half of 2005, you begin to see that. That British Grand Prix win he got after going down to Woking on the Friday night to do some work in the simulator really changed the setup. Then he had that great pass on Alonso, wasn't it? Uh, Silverstone. So it was a little bit of a partnership frustrated because it never quite came together as it should have done. But actually, I think in that period... There was a spell when it was working genuinely well, and they kind of worked reasonably well together because Raikkonen wasn't generally playing games and Montoya was sort of getting on with it. So as a pairing, it actually worked quite well. So it's one of those things that you think, yeah, that didn't work. And then when you look at it, you think, actually, there were things in there that worked pretty well. So I found myself, almost in spite of myself, putting it a little bit higher up than I thought. So it's probably the oddest lineup of all to appraise because did sort of fail as a lineup, but it did sort of work as well at times. And they could have had a 2005 championship double. It wasn't their fault the Mercedes engines wouldn't hold together. Even Norbert Haug admits that was their fault. No, Montoya did contribute quite a lot to... Yeah, he was the second biggest problem with the team after the Mercedes engines that season in terms of how much he you know, had chances to make life harder for Renault and managed to, managed to not do it. I think I, I, I agree, Ed, that the kind of summer of 2005 was quite promising. There were some good points. You know, as a, I do feel like as a Montoya fan back then, I looked for every slight hint of positivity and it, it was very hard to pick out highlights. But yeah, Silverstone was good. I think Monza was good as well. I seem to remember. But um, the, the thing that then drags it back down again for me is 2006. Like, did, did Montoya turn up particularly to that season? I, I don't remember many times when he stood out or really looked anything like the driver he was at his peak. And that, so the fact it kind of 
didn't carry on improving but started to fizzle out again before that sort of humiliating for all concerns mid-season exit just yeah just pulled it down even further again for me looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, on to number six in the list. It's Damon Hill and Jacques Villeneuve at Williams in 1996. They won 12 out of 16 races that year. So Ed will be outraged at that because they, obviously you should win them all. Uh, fought an exclusive battle for the Drivers' Championship and claimed the Constructors' title with more than double the points of Ferrari in second place. This lineup uh, was third in my top 10, not because of the Villeneuve factor, but the overall <laughs> star power. It's two world champions again, and they were utterly dominant. Um, so that comes in on my logic behind Proston Hill. Um, Matt placed them fifth. Ben put them eighth, but they didn't make the cut for Ed. So Ed, we still don't have a single entry that all four of us have included in our top 10s. Uh, you've let us down here. What do you have against Hill and Villeneuve? Again, it's a it's a good partnership, but just one year perhaps didn't absolutely get 100% out of what they could have done. Maybe if they'd been together a little bit longer, it would have Let changed. Let Schumacher win a few races. Exactly, didn't exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's one of those, it, it again comes down to this Williams thing. All the Williams partnerships end up being just that little bit problematic in that they just didn't quite work as you would have hoped. Pill and Villeneuve were fine together. I imagine they'd have got into my top 10 with a second season together. But yeah, just just didn't quite have the chance to mature. Nothing fundamentally wrong with it. Reasonable partnership, but just not quite there. I uh, desperately wanted to rate this lineup higher. Obviously, being a Damon Hill fan and him winning the championship in the year they were together. But obviously, I'm not a massive Villeneuve fan and that, that bumps it down for me. <laughs> and actually, when I was looking at this and trying to rate the champions in order of who I rated as a champion, that knocked them down for me. When you've got drivers like Senna, even Raikkonen, Prost, possibly even Mansell. I I, I really liked Damon Hill, but I didn't think he was one of F1's best champions. Uh, I never thought Villeneuve was that good anyway. And when both of these guys was, were successful, it was at a time when the opposition was really tanking. So... In spite of myself, I had to drop them down the list. For, for me, this is the absolute opposite of my 93 Williams argument. So that was not the best of Prost, not the best of Hill in a dominant car. Okay, dominant car again in 96, but you've got the absolute best of Hill, I'd say, and the absolute best of Villeneuve. You know, I, I would say Villeneuve's first ever F1 race might have been his best. The spirit of the way he repassed Hill was superb. Uh, I th- you know, the Estoril pass on Schumacher, the Suzuka pole lap. There were some amazing Villeneuve moments that season that he didn't actually build on properly for the rest of his career. And Hill's wet weather drives that year, okay, he, he screwed up Barcelona, but uh, Interlagos was superb. Monaco to the engine blue was superb. The, he, they were on the, the best level either of them was ever at, I would say. It wasn't as good as the Schumacher Senna level, but it was, it was good. It was fun. So, yeah, I, I like this pairing. I feel like I should probably justify why uh, this one sits behind Prost Hill for me, given that that was obviously Prost on the way down and Hill as a 
as a rookie, it's kind of it's looking at them overall again. You know, comparing kind of like for like the, the champion. I, you know, I would always put Alan Prost comparing champions like for like. Alan Prost goes above Damon Hill for me. Um, and then in, in the secondary drivers, you know, Damon did a great job as a rookie. Villeneuve did a great job as a rookie. Um, but it's 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 the Alan Prost factor that makes 93 beat 96 for me. And the reason they're second and third on my list is that they're both very similar. They had a very dominant car, not huge opposition. They had a great rival driver hobbled in a, a kind of difficult car. Um, but but they they got they got the job done. I mean, you, you could say with any of these Williams partnerships, it should almost be driver one, driver two, plus Adrian Newey, shouldn't it? And then, then maybe they <laughs> some of them would move up. But let's get into our top five. And uh, it's... Ayrton Senna and Gerhard Berger at McLaren. And um, the surprise in my voice there is because I didn't include this one. I didn't I didn't think it would get in. I certainly didn't think it would be this high. They were together for three Honda-powered years from 1990 to 1992. Senna led them to championship doubles in the first two of those seasons. He claimed 16 wins during their time together. Berger took three. And while Senna was winning two titles um, and obviously everyone got blown away in 92 by Williams. Berger never finished higher than fourth in the standings with McLaren. This uh, was quite an odd one across our scores. As I say, I didn't include it. Matt didn't include it. Ben and Ed both had them third. So uh, we'll let you both justify that. Ben, you can go first. Why does Senna and Berger rank so highly? Okay, so I've surprised myself with this one. <laughs> uh, initially, I was like, yes, yeah, Senna Berger, you know, Berger, who cares? But when I was trying to compare uh, Senna Berger to the other Senna combinations, uh, bearing in mind, you know, through this era, Senna is like right up there, you know, he's top one or two probably in this era's drivers. You realise that Berger gets closer to Senna during their time as teammates than most of the other drivers who've been Senna's teammates. He was arguably better than Prost was in 89, although Prost won the championship that year. Senna had lots of DNFs. And by 92, Berger is one point, I think, behind Senna in the Drivers' Championship. Obviously, they were a harmonious pairing. Berger got the best out of Senna um, and they won two Constructors' titles in that time in a very competitive era. Williams were really strong in that period Obviously, Ferrari were quite strong in the first season. So I think overall, when you take everything into account, how well Berger did as a number two, for me, this is an example of an excellent number two whose performance is strong, stronger than you think, but also the harmony is there, unlike Irvine, who I think just was a tanking driver. So all those criteria um, in terms of harmony, success, and actually the performance of the number two driver being quite impressive massively. And to my surprise put this uh, pairing quite high in my ranking. Yeah, it's all about that word pairing, I think, in this one, particularly with what came before. Senna said that Berger was a teammate that he genuinely got on with kind of more than any other. It's really only Berger and Elio De Angelis of his full season teammates that he really felt he, he got on with. Senna himself said he was more relaxed in the team, no pressure. So he was much, much happier and able to concentrate on things. Berger came in thinking he could take on Senna, quite quickly realised that that was going to be a bit of a struggle. He put in a huge amount of effort kind of going into 91, for example, did all the testing while Senna was relaxing in Brazil and then Senna turned up and was much quicker than him. But Berger didn't play politics. He allowed Senna 
to be Senna. And I think he also helped Senna to just slightly take that little bit of edge off. I mean, it's said that he taught Senna to learn how to have fun. I think that's a bit of a simplification, but I think it really worked well from that regard, just in terms of allowing Senna to do what he did. They also had quite a different way of approaching the car. Senna said that wasn't always ideal because they had quite a different setup approach. But at the same time, that also allowed them to discover things a little bit more. Sometimes Berger preferred a slightly stiffer car. He'd be a little bit harder on the tyres. So that did help them as well over this three-year period actually make sure the car was working as well as it should have done. I think probably the final thing is 91 McLaren were vulnerable and Berger being in that second car helped just to make sure that they could close out both those championships, particularly the Constructors title with Williams coming on strong. So I think Senna Berger at the time was actually a really well talked about teammate pairing, but it's almost been forgotten. I think now, because everyone talks about Senna Prost, you think Berger, you think Berger and Alessi. But that three-year period, I think, worked really, really well, which is why I had it so high up. I agree on the harmony and effectiveness side of things and what a relief it must have been to be inside McLaren with um, Berger Senna after Prost Senna. But for me, it's a little bit like the Raikkonen Montoya thing. Um, you know, Berger looked like a really interesting driver through the mid to late 80s with particularly what he was doing at Benetton and then at Ferrari. And then he gets to McLaren against Senna and you go, ah, no, he's definitely, definitely not in that tier. He, you know, he's, from from my kind of quick refresher on it, similar kind of qualifying gaps between Senna and Prost, but then Prost would always, would always make something happen in the races. And okay, McLaren wasn't as dominant by then, but there's, there weren't enough highlights to really excite me about this one, even though the Senna factor pulls it pulls it right up i just thought this much like uh, raikkonen montoya destroys montoya's legitimacy as an f1 great senna berger destroys any legitimacy berger had as a top top f1 driver but this is where the 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 stats are quite surprising so you would expect yeah berger was just not on senna's level but if you take their time together he he only qualified ahead a few times i think it was 840 uh, in senna's favor but if you compare it to senna prost uh, the Prost numbers are worse against Senna. So these there are some surprising things when you look into the kind of Berger-Senna pairing. Actually, Berger's performance against what I would say is kind of peak Senna as well. Um, you know, he hadn't lost any of his speed by this stage. It wasn't like Prost in 93 and Damon Hill was going up against him. That just elevated it slightly for me when you then consider all the other stuff we've talked about in terms of the effectiveness and the harmony. The stats for Berger actually are quite flattering. For me, it it just the reason it's not included for me, it's just it's a star power thing. You know that that's been that's my logic all the way through this this process. And Gerhard Berger is a great character and a big part of the first half of the V10 era. And it, which we're lucky that we had him. We talk about him. We have interesting stories about him in a lot of those early episodes. But there's just yeah, it's I think we found out that he wasn't. He wasn't at that level. You know, we're not talking about two world champions here. When I don't think we're talking about a guy that got particularly close to being one in, in my mind. So, yes, we've got Ayrton Senna on one side of the garage, but Berger, Berger's just not of a high enough level for me to make a top 10. But let's move on to fourth place in our list. This is another combination that didn't win a championship, but as I will shortly be arguing, it had... Uh, Plenty of star power, and I don't think anyone's going to disagree with me. It's Alain Prost and Nigel Mansell at Ferrari. They were only together for one year 
1990 and fell out pretty spectacularly during that season, which initially led Mansell into retirement before he was talked out of it to to rejoin Williams for 1991. Despite the tension, they only came up 11 points short against McLaren in the constructors standings in the beautiful Ferrari 641, which is my second favourite F1 car of all time. Prost took the fight to centre in the Drivers' Championship as well. Uh, They won six races between them, which is the same number Senna won for McLaren. I had this combination fourth in my list. Ben had it fifth. Uh, Ed didn't include them, so we'll ask why in a moment. Matt had them second. So, Matt, what made you put Prost and Mansell so high on your list? This is a surprising one from uh, Captain I Hate Mansell, isn't it? But (laughs) I... I looked back at that season and okay, I would have ex- I would have expected, despite disliking Mansell as much as I do, I would have expected him to be closer to Prost overall than he was. Um, and actually, I thought he Prost did a very very good job against Mansell, kind of at his peak. So for me, the Prost side of things pulls things right up because it's I, a great Prost season. It's, a, I, it? it's probably one. Of, I think it's Prost's best season, except his kind of Renault seasons, probably. Um, I'm very impressed with how he turned the team around, how he actually was hitting Mansell on raw pace, which is not what I would have expected. Um, and I don't think Mansell's contribution was actually rubbish in comparison. The Prost made it look a bit flaccid, but it wasn't, you know, this is this is still one of, uh, the certainly I would still, despite my dislike of Mansell, put him top three in his era. I don't think he was kind of Schumacher Alonso class later in the V10s era, but he was, you know, the closest thing to Prost and Senna in raw ability and, sheer determination to make up for any raw ability shortfall with creativity and stubbornness. But yeah, I, I can, when you put the names down on paper and what they were capable of at that time, this was like I say, Prost's greatest season and Mansell was still a pretty good Mansell and was not rubbish at this point. So almost by default, because for me, number one was way ahead of everything else. And it was like a big mishmash after that. Like, yeah, I, I think I couldn't put it lower than second. Ed, while Matt was talking there, I saw you staring pensively out the window. Is that because you, you, it was dawning on you that uh, how could I not have included this in my top 10? <laughs> no, I just saw a dog out the window and uh, I like dogs. Woof. So uh, I thought that was much better than listening to the spurious argument being made. But, so, <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, look, quality of drivers, both outstanding. Two of the great drivers, Mansell and Prost. But again, I come back to this whole thing of pairings. They just didn't work well together. We've talked about that on Bring Back V10s before, probably right back in our very first episode, did we talk about? Yeah, the beginning uh, the of episode Mansell one, yeah. Stuff. Yeah, what was that line from Prost that he was doing better because while Mansa was off playing golf, he was doing work, if that was something like that. Prost has said, and, and this is in the context of a pairing is all about getting the most out of the machinery in the year. Prost said that with a different teammate, he'd have probably won that championship because... He, I mean, one of the ways he's put it is in terms of if he'd had number one status. So perhaps that's a slightly different thing about him wanting a team built around him. But it just didn't gel that well. And they slightly under-delivered. Prost, brilliant season. But I'm looking at partnerships that were more than the sum of their parts. And this, to me, was less than the sum of Nigel Mansell plus Alain Prost. Because that should be absolutely incredible. But it just wasn't a lineup that worked well together, even though Prost almost won the championship. Perhaps if it was Prost Berger, Prost wins a Drivers' Championship. Who knows? What it should have been was Prost Irvine. (laughs) That's what we've established. I actually find that argument from Ed quite convincing. Oh, no. I know. I'm going to shock myself. Even though uh, it's a 
the reason it's high up in my ranking is because of the Matt's hand is shot the, up. He's gonna he's gonna argue you down. The star, <laughs> please put me out of my misery. The star power of Prost and Mansell is just it, it was too compelling for me. Even it's irresistible. Yeah, even those two drivers in that gorgeous car, it you know it had to be in the top five. For yeah, me. and and like peak of their powers as well. You know, even that Mansell a late bloomer, obviously. And I get the volatility and that that part of Ed's argument is very compelling that it just didn't work. It was combustible, you know, Mansell driven to, you know, almost retirement or retirement, then non-retirement. But there's part of me that also feels that Mansell got better from being in that, uh, going through that experience. You know, Prost did work incredibly hard, you know, bought some engineering methodology and people across from McLaren when he left there. Uh, and obviously Mansell then goes on to have two of his best seasons in Formula 1 subsequent to this. So I don't think it was, it was without its benefits residual, even though that season itself was, you know, as Ed says, less than maybe it should have been. But just what a pairing, like two of the best drivers of the era. You have them in the same car. You rarely see it. Uh, so when you do see it, you have to celebrate it. I was going to say, I, uh, I've, I've marked a few partnerships up on Harmony grounds, but I didn't even let Harmony factor into this decision. And my initial argument for that was going to be, you're not going to get Harmony with Mansell, so what's the point in even worrying about that in this case? <laughs> but actually, I, it's, that's a bit harsh on Mansell. I don't think you were going to get Harmony. There was no way of putting any of the three of Prost, Senna and Mansell together and expecting Harmony, given the character's well basically the characters and the level they were operating at and the tension around them so you almost almost removed the harmony column from my point scoring in this one because it's like no don't don't bother factoring that in it's gonna be it's gonna be a disaster on that front it kind of sums up one of the eternal truths of teammate partnerships in the times we've had two driver partnerships in formula one more often than not, it works better where you've got one megastar, so a Senna, a Prost, a Schumacher, a, a PK, someone like that, and sort of a very good second-tier guy, a Berger, someone like that, or in more modern times, Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas. But they are, in terms of the kind of netability, not as good as one with two top drivers. I'll always like to put together two top drivers, but it just often doesn't work. And that's why it comes down to me is, does the lineup elevate a team overall or does it reduce it? And if it's either Mansell or Prost on their own, they'll play a good part in performing well. But who you put with them is a really important question. And I just think, yeah, the point I think Matt made was that however you slice and dice these top drivers around, it doesn't work very well. And that's why there haven't been many all-world champion driver lineups throughout history, because it's just very, very difficult to pull off. Here we go then, time for the top three. And it's here that we finally get to a driver pairing. We all voted for it. It only took us from all the way from 10 to 3, and we finally found one. So in third place is Mika Hakkinen and David Coulthard, who were together from 1996 to 2001 at McLaren. Hakkinen won back-to-back -back driver's titles in 1998 and 99 while these two were together. McLaren also won the constructor's title in the first of those years. They won 30 races together uh, as teammates, obviously helped guide McLaren back to the promised land, having both joined at various stages uh, during the team's kind of barren streak uh, without any championships. All three of you uh, had this lineup in your top threes. Uh, Matt had them third. Ben and Ed had them second. I only placed them sixth, which is, again, is the star power argument. David Coulthard was a, a, a great, worthy Grand Prix winning driver, but he wasn't in that 
top echelon for me. So it fell behind the like the the big the big names that I felt you know the the combinations I I found more exciting, even if maybe they weren't as we've discussed as harmonious. Um, so you've all got good things to say about this group, Ben. We'll come to you first. What made you put them so? High up. Is it the success, the longevity? Was there a chemistry thing? What is it? It's the strong overall combination, I think. It's a it's a strong element of everything, if you like. Longevity actually plays a role here as well. It's part of the reason I rated Senna and Berger a bit higher than some others because they managed to do three, three seasons together without killing each other and <laughs> succeeded uh, in terms of results. Obviously, Hakkinen and Coulthard together a long time. You mentioned lots of race wins, some championship successes. I think they had a really good balance between a driver who was a number one, maybe, you know, not even really maybe, not as strong as Michael Schumacher, but not far off. So a proper number one driver from the era. And then paired with a driver who wasn't really a nailed on number two. He was not quite a number one somewhere in the middle. And during this period, he's not accepted quite for the most part that he isn't at the top level. So he's really striving to get there. Similar to when Bottas went to Mercedes with Hamilton. Um, so therefore, you have Coulthard getting quite close to Hakkinen. Um, probably the number two drivers, if you're going to call him that, he's closer to the number one than any of the other drivers in these combinations. Um, so that just raises the whole level of the team up for me. And that's why I had to put this pairing so high up. For me, it's the thing that helped a bit was actually the kind of shoulder seasons, either side of the the title wins, um, because actually in ninety eight, ninety nine, you get you get enormous hacking in scores for ninety eight. I would say ninety nine, sketchy, threw a few bits away, and then as someone who rated Coulthard quite highly at first, you've got me as a teenager going, "Oh, okay, he's actually no, you know, he's really making a mess of having the best car now." Um, doing very little winning and contributing quite a lot to some McLaren disasters. But then either side of that, I thought Coulthard was really respectable when he found his feet in 96. He was getting the early results from McLaren at that point. He was great for part of 97. Um, and then towards the end of their time together, you know, Coulthard was a was a proper title contender for a good chunk of 2000 and put in some of his, his best, most aggressive drives then. And they led McLaren in 2001 at the time that the car really was tailing off and wasn't a Ferrari match anymore. So in a way they're kind of artificially elevated because they were together for so long there's loads of seasons to factor in um but even if even if there hadn't been actually even if you were just doing it on 98 99 in is so impressive on pure speed apart from anything else and then getting the job done when he really had to under pressure even after nearly throwing it away just actually Nürburgring 98 I thought was phenomenal you know and the this is doing what he needed to do in the Suzuka races um so Massive hacking in points. Coulter wasn't a bad number two, just a bit of a wasteful one and nowhere near as good as, as we might have hoped he might have been. But on either side of that, there's loads of signs of greatness from both of them. It's just one of those partnerships that worked, isn't it? It had the longevity. They were both quick. Hakkinen, when everything was right, was stunningly fast. Coulthard, a little bit more erratic, but on his day, brilliant. Even when they did have moments when there were problems, so you think about the Australia controversy with the radio call that didn't escalate into anything Austria 99 when Coulthard basically drove into Hakkinen and uh, and cost McLaren quite badly in, in that race so it worked very 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 well and I think 
that's why I had it so high. The one thing that counts against them is the uh, the fact they didn't manage to win the 99 Constructors' Championship against the lamentably disastrous, apparently, uh, uh, Irvine in the Ferrari. So, um, yeah, that, that was the one thing where I sort of looked at it and said, that's the one thing that they didn't quite deliver on that they really should have done. Yeah, I think I think all of that's that's fair. As, as has been highlighted there, really, there are enough high points from Coulthard. Where you know he he didn't he never sustained it enough over a season, but he he was great at times, particularly in '97. He he had peaks in '99 and 2000 before before Hakkinen dropped off and in DC became the lead driver in 2001. All those elements, if I were to compare, say Hakkinen and Coulthard with Senna and Berger, which I didn't include. Coulthard's doing lots of things that I don't think we ever would have seen from Berger. And I don't think, you know, if, if Berger had taken over, if Berger had become the lead driver in 2001, for example, I don't think he puts together the season Coulthard does. So, yeah, this one, I, I didn't factor it anywhere near as highly as, as you guys did because it fell behind the superstar combinations for me. But I can see why it ranked... So, highly, let's get on to second place then. And it's time for, statistically, the most successful partnership of the V10 era. Michael Schumacher and Rubens Barrichello at Ferrari. Schumacher and Barrichello were, of course, together for all of Ferrari's early 2000s dominance, taking five consecutive championship doubles. While Schumacher won all those drivers' titles, uh, Barrichello's championship results were fourth, third, second, fourth and second. Ferrari claimed 58 race wins while they were together, or 57 if you don't want to include Indianapolis 2005. Um, 49 of those went to Schumacher and nine to Barrichello. Ed and Ben uh, had this combination top of their list. Matt had them fourth and I only put them seventh. Wow. Wow. Um, which I will explain. Well, let's explain it now. Um, <laughs> I just think the success of this partnership as a collective is because Michael Schumacher was doing all the winning and all the heavy lifting. I don't, even on the harmony side, I don't think they had the Irvine Schumacher number one, number two level of harmony. Barrichello went in there thinking he could take the fight to Schumacher. I don't think he ever did. Um, and then whenever there was a team orders, um, you know, controversy or moment going on. Barrichello didn't play the game in the same way Irvine did. Ferrari didn't need to play team orders during this era, but they did. Um, and Rubens made it much more difficult for them uh, than Irvine did. So I just, I, I, I don't think against all the other pairings that I put above this, and you can make the Hacken and Coulthard comparison that we just had. I think David Coulthard contributed a lot more to his time at McLaren than I believe Barrichello did to the success that was going on at this time at Ferrari. Uh, but <clears throat> Ed, let's hear the counter argument. You were one of the one of us that put it top, along with Ben. Is it just a sheer numbers game for you? Does the most dominant pairing, once you add up all the numbers, have to be top of the list? They don't have to, but it's a, a part of the argument, isn't it? Five consecutive championship doubles, that's the definition of doing your job. They wouldn't have been able to do it in... Um, 2005 because the tyres weren't there so yeah very 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 effective and I think Barrichello there was still the desire in him to be the guy that wins a certain sort of chippiness about things but it was just contained enough to be useful I always think you need a number two who is very much the number two and contributes but ideally you need them not quite to know it 
And I think Rubens to this day still doesn't quite <laughs> uh, accept that. So that's what I think made him well. There are a few little flashpoints, obviously, the Austria thing, where Ferrari didn't handle it brilliantly and Rubens kind of magnified that with his very, very late dropping back, having ultimately he agreed to that situation. So it's just almost a defining partnership for this era that worked very, very well. And Rubens was a very, very good technical driver as well. So I think the contribution he made with that side of things was quite important. There were weekends where he picked out directions in terms of tyre choice, that kind of thing that was the right way to go. Sometimes Schumacher went that way a few times when he didn't, and that often helped Rubens have his strong weekends as well. So I think he helped them cover a lot of the ground they needed to across those two drivers, while ultimately being a kind of a quintessential, absolute all-time great with a very, very, very good number two, which, much as I find it a bit more boring than two absolute megastars, is a good recipe for success. So all of that, plus the overall sheer numbers and the fact that you think this era, Schumacher and Barrichello in those red Ferraris in the first years of this century are really something that leaps to mind. Yeah, to me, it's a similar argument to the one I made for Hakkinen and Coulthard, but they're just a better overall pairing because Barrichello's numbers compared to Schumacher, if you compare them to Coulthard's numbers versus Hakkinen, they're not far off in terms of his relative performance. As Ed said, he had that that idea in his head that he wasn't quite a number two. He could maybe be a number one and that was enough to lift his performance, I think, and therefore the overall performance of the team. The effectiveness in terms of results is there where it wasn't with the McLaren pairing. Um, and because Barraclough's gone up against an absolute elite champion, you know, one of the all-time greats, Hakkinen maybe wouldn't be quite in that category that lifts it to number one for me except it doesn't quite have the star power of some of the others but it does have the longevity so the harmony was there and I say this even though during this period as a fan I hated the Michael Schumacher Barrichello pairing for their dominance and their success but I have to accept that as a pairing they were superb and just as one small additional point the reason I put them ahead of the Coulthard Hackenden one was because Coulthard and Hackenden did leave that Constructors' Championship on the table, whereas Schumacher and Barrichello ultimately didn't. They really delivered on what they had. So that was the defining point between those two lineups for me. I would just say, before Matt comes in there, I, I can't really think of a Constructors' Championship where you're going, yeah, without Barrichello, they probably wouldn't have got over the line there. I mean, he gets a lot of credit for 2003, for example, where when Schumacher didn't necessarily always get on well with the car. Rubens kind of had some high points in the summer but I've been looking back at that and what did he win two races that year and he's the, I think most of the Barrichello praise it's good good in 02 and 04 though isn't he that it's the years either side of that he's well, very when the effective. car is untouchable when he's just rolling around in second place you know I think the, the 03 praise he gets is mainly based around Silverstone where a man ran on the track and Barrichello <laughs> grabbed a crazy race by the scruff of the neck and did a did a great job but that doesn't build doesn't build a whole season or, or you know, that doesn't build a case for me that he did a great job here. But we, we've all been talking over Matt, who's not had a chance to come in yet. So, Matt, you, you put them fourth in your list. What was your reasoning? Just that this wasn't... A, a, the circumstances didn't allow me to go, this was a really great top two, top three pairing. This wasn't the absolute best of Schumacher. It didn't need to be by that point. And 
I think Barrichello was a, was a driver of enormous ability at his best, probably one who never showed the best of himself in F1 in the end because his kind of formative years got too skewed with there's no centre anymore, I now have the pressure of all of Brazil on my head and I don't think that did him any favours whatsoever. But, you know, I thought he looked great at times, 93, uh, 94 as well, and particularly 97 and 99 with Stuart. He was... He was closer to Schumacher than Irvine was, albeit in better cars. I think he'd have made a better contribution to Ferrari's 96 to 99 than Irvine did, albeit probably with a little bit more chippiness and head dropping along the way because he saw himself in a different way to Irvine did. They signed the wrong Jordan driver. Exactly. I still think that. But um, but yeah, I, I think one of the things that made me mark it down a bit was... Around the team all this time in 2002, what seemed like some of Barrichello's better moments that season seemed like Schumacher kind of apologising to him. There were races, I'm thinking, kind of Nürburgring, Hungary, where Schumacher was sort of not really convincingly beaten. It just felt like Schumacher hadn't been as on it around pit stops as he might have been. And and that happened a few times. It made me think, oh, Barrichello's actually inherited a few things here because Schumacher's trying to apologise. Um, Indianapolis was the very, very obvious one in 2002 with that awful dead heat nonsense insult to everyone who followed Formula One. But there were there were other races that season as well. So, I, you know, this Schumacher to me was an absolute great genius, obviously, but I don't think this was him at his best because it didn't need to be. Barrichello was one of the most talented drivers of the era, but not always delivering on it at this point. None of which makes it bad, but to me, it didn't make it a top two, top three. Well, let's move on to the one that has got the number one place then, winning by just four points across our combined scores. So it was very close between this and Schumacher Barrichello. It's, of course, Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost at McLaren. Now, in this debate, we can only include 1989. So their dominant 1988, where they won all but one race, doesn't get included. In 89, they won 10 of 16 races and, uh, of course, famously fought for the championship until it was decided in acrimonious fashion at that year's Japanese Grand Prix, uh, a race that we are constantly asked, when are we going to cover it? We will at some point, I would say... um, the more you ask me, the more I am incentivized to push it back. Um, <laughs> it's it's one of those, to answer the question seriously, it's one of those, we like going back. It's good to go back to some of the famous races. You don't want to burn through all of the famous races immediately because some, you know, you want, you want some variety. You want to dig out a random, to use a recent example, Imola 97, where you go, actually, there was lots going on there. And it's really interesting to talk about Heinz Held Frentzen at Williams in a way that we haven't done before. You you want to pick out lots of different stories. You want to hear stories that we've even forgotten until we look them up again and then we can present them them back to you. And also, honestly, with the Senna Prost stuff up to now, it's been more interesting for me to go back and research Imola 89, which was the start of the war. And then we talked about it a lot with France 89 because that was when Prost announced he was leaving McLaren telling some other parts of the story rather than the bits that let's face it as hardcore F1 fans as a lot of us will be and a lot of you are that are listening you've heard the stories that yeah we can give our perspective we can go over some specifics that maybe get lost through a a narrative that's now controlled probably by the center film Um, but yeah it's it's not one that's been massively high on my list it's a must do at some point but uh, I don't feel that we've been. Uh, I don't feel that we've let ourselves down by not doing it 
yet. Anyway, uh, I thought I'd give you that while we were mentioning Suzuka 89 because uh, I've, I've seen it in our new community on Twitter as well. People saying, when are you going to do it? In 89, behind all that success McLaren were having with these two star drivers, the team was being torn apart uh, on the inside. Uh, as I say, we've covered a lot of that and what was building up before we got to the end of, uh, well, the end of Senna Prost at the end of this year. But let's uh, go into our votes. Matt and I had Senna and Prost top of our lists. Um, they didn't make, Ben and Ed didn't put them in their individual top threes. Ben had them fourth. Ed put them just fifth, um, presumably because only won 10 out of 16 races. Um, <laughs> Matt, let's see. Let's start with the positives. Let's see how our logic compares then. For you, is this just a, a star power argument? You know, when you see Senna Prost, is that is that too difficult to resist putting at number one? It did feel like it would be completely insane to not put it at number one. It was too compelling. Uh, again, with the quality of what they were both doing at that point, I know the, some of the qualifying gaps were fairly horrendous for for Prost at parts in parts of the year but I don't Prost from about 1984 onwards knew that he didn't really have to bother in qualifying necessarily because of how he was going to come through in a yeah, race I don't think we were seeing a hundred percent of what Alain Prost was capable of over a single lap no I don't think you saw that after he left Renault basically <laughs> yeah it was, it was it was all about how do I get the job done and he Okay, so there's we talked about this on our last top ten at the end of last season, and obviously for we, we are all moderately similar age, and this was this is the sort of era, part of the year we remember least well personally in a way. So it's sort of foggy for me in 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 a sort of rose tinted way. Maybe maybe I over. I don't have the same sort of massive detailed depth I have for like 94, 95, 96, 97. So maybe I, I overstate how good things were. But to me, despite the war going on behind the scenes, it wasn't, they weren't actually losing a lot on track from that. Senna was still extraordinary. Prost was champion this year and still making it happen in the races and sometimes actually getting really close to Senna in, in qualifying relatively as well. Two brilliant drivers. I, the team harmony was absolutely destructively horrendous, but I don't think it actually cost them that much apart from making it a miserable place to work and i even kind of like quite like the manner in which prost took center out to settle the championship there's a sort of quite cool swagger about that i'm not going to like drive right into the back of you i'm just going to turn in a bit early and i'm just going to unclip my belts and wander off and just go all right this is over you've wrecked this for both of us i don't care i'm done i've won the championship suck on that I don't know that there was much swagger about the clumsy way he turned in at the chicane, but I get the car. I liked of, it. Yeah, the nonchalant getting out of the car and just walking off. Having been a bastion of inconsistency throughout this show, <laughs> uh, I'm going to try and explain my logic for only ranking them fourth in my personal list. Star power, 100% number one, no question. But... Only one season together, as you mentioned, completely tore the team apart. Uh, so no harmony whatsoever. Not really a good experience for the team. But the kicker for me is you think, okay, Senna Prost, yeah, obviously everyone's going to pick them as like probably the number one pairing based on their ability and what they've done in Formula One and, you know, the global picture. But I just don't think Prost was that impressive in this season compared to Senna. You know, he qualified, he qualified ahead how many times was it? He got two poles. He only qualified ahead of Senna twice in that one season. Uh, he finished ahead of him when they finished together on the track only once. So I think he benefited a lot from Senna's misfortune, um, some mechanical failures at key times. I don't think Prost in that season was as good compared to Senna as some of his 
some of his other teammates. And then I, once I worked that out for myself, I had to put this pairing behind Senna and Berger, and therefore they fell out of the top three because because Senna, Senna and Berger behind Senna and Berger. I never thought I'd see the day. I know, and I never thought I would as well. But I just think, I just think at that point in time, Prost, you weren't seeing the absolute best of Prost in that season. He's no Gerhard even, Berger, clearly. Even though he won the championship. I know, he was no Gerhard Berger, exactly. He certainly wasn't for McLaren. So, um, yeah, so they had to drop out of my top three. This whole debate with Prost Senna becomes almost the, the fulcrum of where you are on this argument in that if you're looking at pure pound-for-pound pound two drivers, they're two of the all-time greatest drivers. So it is, by that definition, one of the greatest drivers that, driver pairings there's ever been in Formula 1. But it didn't work that well. They were fortunate they had a big pace advantage over everyone else at McLaren, about 1.5% over that year. So they could do pretty much whatever they want within reason without that really jeopardising the overall results. But they couldn't carry on like that. They ended up, over the coming years, never being able to even consider about being in the same team. You know, it led to Prost making sure he retired when there was any possibility Williams might get Senna in. So it just didn't work. It was a dysfunctional pairing. And that will have had an effect on everyone in the team as well. So there's this sort of brute force quality that they had through being two outstanding drivers. Even a Prost not at his best was still delivering very, very well and able to win the championship versus how well they worked as a pairing, which is why, for me, they fell behind those pairings that I felt gelled very well and served the purposes of the team they were driving for, which is, after all, what this is all about at the time. I just think as a pairing, it just can't work. And it illustrates that point about the two roosters in the same hen house just sometimes doesn't work. And it could have cost a lot more than it did to McLaren. They were fortunate they did have that advantage they had because everyone else was either useless or underachieving or didn't have any money. Taking Ben's point about how this wasn't peak Prost, which I absolutely agree with, but I don't think there was a single pairing in this whole era we're we're considering where you had two absolutely top drivers on peak form in the same team at the same time. Every single pairing in my scoring system that I took whole minutes over working out to do my top 10, it was like one exceptionally good driver really, really delivering and then somebody else. And in this case, somebody else was a four-time world champion who still beat that other guy to the championship, albeit with some retirements built in and, and was one of the top three drivers of, the, of, his, of his main decade. So Prost was by some distance, by some distance rather, the least worst somebody else on this list. And, and I find that compelling. Alan Prost, the, uh, the solid number two. <laughs> he managed to number two his way who to the world the championship. championship. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Prost gets... A lot of criticism for just the, the non-existent uh, one-lap pace that he showed versus Senna, but I think an element of that was 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 conscious. You know, uh, he in modern F1, you you can't get away with just saying, "Oh, I'm just going to prepare my car for the race." Um, you know, if you, if you're in a front-running car and you're not qualifying on the front two rows of the grid week in week out, you're not going to put a championship run together and I think if if Prost even in that at that age uh was in was dropped into the current era of F1 he would put more effort into qualifying and he would pull those laps out of himself I think he worked out that no matter how hard he worked at setup and driving the perfect qualifying lap his odds of out qualifying Ayrton Senna regularly were incredibly low so he decided let's not go after that 
let's let's go with the race and you and you could back then you you could set your car up and run your weekend aimed at the race over qualifying um and probably we well, you know we mentioned Senna was unlucky in 89 with unreliability but I'm sure there was an element as well of Prost driving with some mechanical sympathy because that was still a thing uh at the beginning of the V10 era certainly and throughout most of it you know it was only really Ferrari in the Schumacher era that changed the game on reliability and made bulletproof reliability a real thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I'd never hold that against Prost too much. But as I've said, and Ed made the argument for me really earlier, he said, if you're just looking purely at the power of the two names and the quality of the two drivers, you have to put them number one, which is exactly what I did. So thank you, Ed. And uh, Ben, you're... Your, yours and Ed's hands are up and I think you beat him to the punch. Yeah, I think we all agree on the star power argument of this lineup. Thank you, let's end the show. <laughs> <laughs> but even accepting, and I agree with it, this this idea that Prost prioritised the races and may I say I have huge respect for Alan Prost and think he was an amazing driver and he doesn't get the credit sometimes that he deserves. No, Nicky Lauda talked about how Prost was so good at eventually at um, developing his car for the race. In fact, he probably taught him that because Lauda went through the same thing that Prost went through well, with the, Senna. The dynamic was reversed then, wasn't yeah. it? You know, Prost was the quick guy and Lauda was the, the kind of wily veteran. Yeah, who, who did prioritise his race setup to try and, you know, beat Prost. And he managed to obviously do the 84 championship and Prost probably twigged that that was quite an efficient way to do things sometimes. But when you compare Senna and Prost in their two seasons together at McLaren, Prost doesn't really outrace Senna. Uh, you know, across across the board, I think his finishing ahead ratio is like 43%. And compared to Berger, 39%. That's too close for me. And if you take 89 on its own, which is the one season within our Bring Back V10s era, that ratio drops to 14%. Prost only finished ahead once. So even though he was uh, prioritising the race, maybe, because of what he'd learned from Lauda and he knew he couldn't beat Senna over one lap. He wasn't really beating him in the races either. He was just getting fortunate, as I said before, in terms of certain circumstances or reliability problems and bad luck for Senna. So I just, even though in the round, they're the most incredible driver pairing you could have based on their individual careers, I just think in this season, not only was it combustible and a failure, as Ed very eloquently explained, Prost just wasn't impressive versus Senna. I think just swerving onto the topic of how you evaluate the standing of these pairings, to take a comparison with the Senna Berger one, if any of you were working for McLaren, let's say in some general design capacity or, or something. Chief designer. Let's say chief designer. Would you rather be there in 89 where you've got Prost and Senna playing games, driving into each other, causing problems, not working together to get the absolute most out of the car? Or do you want what they had with Senna and Berger where you've got Senna being brilliant, Berger being the support act, working together, helping to make the team work, making it a good place to operate, everyone getting the best out of themselves? Which one would you rather from an actual working perspective, not from the fly on the wall fact, because obviously everyone would have been liked to would have liked to have been the fly on the wall cross centre. But purely from if you were there doing a real world job, I would, I would obviously like to be in there in the more harmonious time. But then I'm not. I so, so I'm right. No, is what you're I'm saying. not. I'm not part of a sports team. 
You are in this you life. Know, that's not a normal also, job. Also, the you, title you, of this episode isn't most harmonious, most cohesive team lineups of the you, V10 era. You want era. success, and they <laughs> brought yeah, success. I don't need Mark Blundell and Martin Brundle were nowhere near this debate. The word is pairing, so it's the sum. It's not just the sum of two individual parts. It's what they work together as. Did Senna and Prost collectively deliver more as a pairing than they did as two individuals? I'd say they actually delivered a little bit less than they could have done because of everything that was going on. So I don't think it helped the team. I have to say, Glenn, and confess that I did almost include Martin Brundle and Mark Blundell as one of my wild card entries. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'd, I'd have put them top 15, definitely. That was a very good pairing, actually, in fairness. Yeah. Well, let's leave it there because I, I can't believe that that last chunk descended into the, the merits of Senna, Senna Prost versus Senna Berger. <laughs> and we were actually trying to make a compelling case that you know, we were we were putting Gerhard Berger above Alain Prost. I, I get the the cohesion element, but not on a competitive front at all. But uh, yeah, to, to end up with the final word being on uh, Brundle and Blundell, which will always be hard to say. And uh, on the couple of occasions where I've had to say it in Bring Back V10s, I've usually got it wrong, and we've either uh, left it in. Or, or we've sometimes had to cut it out. But if you're listening and you're wondering if we had to cut it out here, no, I got it right uh, at the first attempt. And I'm not going to say it again uh, for fear of not being capable of it. Brilliant debate. Thank you, Ed, Ben and Matt. Uh, listeners, head to our Twitter community. Tear our top tens apart, but make sure you send your own in as well. I'll, I'll do a, pinned, a new pinned post in the group. And uh, you can realise just how difficult this is. But please, 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 I don't want to hear any more about how great Gerhard Berger is. <laughs> you know, you know, I got nothing against him, but I did not expect him to come out of this episode getting so much air. You're welcome, Gerhard. And, uh, and picking up so much praise as well. It's just, you know, it's Gerhard Berger, solid, solid driver, fun character, an OK number two. I, I, I'm genuinely amazed at how well he has done out of this episode <laughs> if this podcast was bring back larry mid 80s turbos i could accept this amount of burger praise but no just, what a waste of airtime all this burger praise has been i know i'm stunned i'm stunned by it i'm stunned by it and uh you know the the prost center thing briefly descended into a prost versus center debate and actually that's not what this episode was about at all it, it's you know it's an hr argument <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure they had enough of those you know it's it was the combination, the combination. Uh, and I think it's very interesting that they they won, but by a narrow margin. And the great, the reason we have four of us here debating this is because the more people you ask, the more interpretations you get. And as I've said, the, the title and, and the definition of, of almost the question we're being asked is deliberately left open because the wider... You know, the wider you can cast the net and the, the, the more different ways you can interpret it, the more apparently people you get that think Gerhard Berger is a fantastic F1 teammate and, uh, and, and should be really high up in a ranking like this. But uh, we've got just one more episode to go in Series 7 and it's the traditional finale where we'll be taking your questions on anything to do with F1's V10 era. And uh, I'm going to have to go back now and see if there are any Gerhard Berger questions we can shoehorn in. The Athletic.